welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode covers the Howard Hawks comedy Monkey Business from the 50s. This is part of a series, uh, well, a whole season I'm doing on classic Hollywood. Started in July, will end in December. And uh, the previous episode covered Swing Time, the Stair Rogers musical. Please send any feedback you have on this or any other thing that I've discussed. You can go back years. Um, I'll, I'll be happy to read it on here. And uh, here's what I've been up to on other feeds and other, you know, on my site, written posts, podcasts, etc. Uh, before we get to the main review. And I'm going to try to move through this quickly. Actually, I'm recording this a second time because it was taking too long to discuss all this stuff. There's been quite a lot of activity in July. So first of all, Lost in Twin Peaks podcast where I cover every episode of the show. I do a week on each episode, uh, a day on different elements of, of it. So I did parts 9 and 10 of uh, season 3. Had an illustrated companion on my site with screenshots, time codes, etc. that you can scroll through as you listen. Kind of nice visual accompaniment there. And each episode is called, uh, well, you know, as it goes through the week, there's a episode, Welcome, Out of Town, Back in Town, Mythology, Current Events, In the Weeds, and, the, and Archive. And part 10, I did a more in town section, talking more about what happens in Twin Peaks instead of the mythology, because there wasn't that much mythology in that episode. Then I put out an episode called A Long Pause Before the Rest of Season 3, Announcement, where I talk about why I'm pausing the podcast for the moment, hopefully resume it around November, but it was just too time-consuming and part of why this episode is delayed here. I, I should have mentioned that at the outset. Um, Monkey Business was supposed to come out on Wednesday. Usually I do the first Wednesday of each month is a lost, new Lost in the Movies episode, but it just got delayed because of all this other stuff. For my Twin Peaks Cinema podcast, I put out an episode on Dangerous Ground. Uh, it's the on the movie On Dangerous Ground. Uh, Nicholas Ray Noir from the early 50s, part of a series I'm doing called Ray's Haunted 50s, where I compare his uh, works from that decade to Twin Peaks and draw out tons of connections there. I was a guest on several other podcasts. This is sort of unusual. i haven't, you know, other than Twin Peaks Unwrapped occasionally, maybe a few times a year, I really haven't been on that many podcasts discussing Twin Peaks since the return, but for some reason, three different ones reached out to me at this time. Um, one of them's not quite a podcast, it's a conference, we'll get to that in a second, but the first podcast was Uncut Gems. This is um, a Patreon episode of theirs, but they made it available to the public until August 31st, so you can listen to the whole discussion there, it's on Firewalk with me. Obnoxious and Anonymous, uh, hosted by Cameron Cloutier, who I had on my podcast a month or two ago. He put out a Twin Peaks Thought of the Day, July 21st, 2022. Had me on there to discuss some of the Twin Peaks actors who passed away, um, different aspects of the show, you know, nice long discussion there. And then uh, Wyndham's Cabin, a virtual Twin Peaks experience, was the online virtual conference where they had tons of panels. I was on a panel of podcasters. They had actors, fan filmmakers performers, all kinds of people, and uh, that's accessible. You can access all of those video archives. There's like a $35 donation that you can make to charitable causes, and that uh, that opens up the conference through, uh, I think, a Facebook group or something like that. So you can check all that out. Links are in the show notes, as always. On YouTube, I did Twin Peaks Conversations number 12, audio with Counter Esperanto hosts Jubal Brousseau and Carl Eckler, talking about the connections between weird fiction and Twin Peaks. That was an interesting subject to explore. On Patreon, for the $5 a month tier, I continued that discussion with a longer section, part two of the conversation with those two. For the dollar a month tier, I put out uh, just today, episode 93, Coffee and Cigarettes, the Jim Jarmusch film, talking about that, plus feedback, media, work updates, 
including discussions of Captain America, the Winter Soldier, Russian Revolution, mall culture, and an archive reading of my essay on Lady and the Tramp. And I released exclusive advances of the Twin Peaks character series, uh, numbers 86 through 84 and 80 through 78. The ones, other ones were um, didn't need to be updated. This is a series I did back in 2017 before season three, talking about all the characters of the show and doing like a written um, study of each, looking at different aspects of them. And I'm renewing that next year. And in advance, I'm posting three advance entries a month for patrons. So you can definitely check that out. And finally, on my site, I had announcements considering the Generations video essay and series for the end of 2022 about a project that I am thinking about working on soon. And then uh, pausing Lost in Twin Peaks again, plus my plans going forward, where I talk about, uh, again, the pausing of the Lost in Twin Peaks podcast. So that was a bit briefer than my initial recording. And now we can move on to monkey business. It's monkey business, all right. And believe me, Kerry never had so much fun in his life. Want to know why? Well, just look at what goes into this monkey business. There's a generous helping of Ginger. Ginger Rogers, that is. A dash of Charles Coburn for a chaser. Plenty of Marilyn Monroe for spice. And someone to see that things shape up properly. Uh, scientifically, of course. I've done a lot of experimenting with this kind of thing. You can come in now, if you're not too busy. <laughs> Miss Laurel was just showing me her acetates. This was my first time seeing Monkey Business. I've seen a lot of Howard Hawks comedies before, and uh, he's a director I really like a lot. He took me a little while to warm up to. When I saw his first few films, I didn't quite know what to make of them, because unlike, say, Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford, the other directors he's often paired with, he doesn't have this sort of style that leaps out to you. And yet his films are so immediately identifiable, and that's ultimately what fascinated me so much about him, how somebody who's sort of more subtle and indirect and really eclectic in the genres he worked in. Like he wasn't the Western guy or the thriller guy. He was like the screwball comedy, action film, war film, Western, gangster film guy. Like he just did everything. So he was much harder to pin down in that sense. This was a film that I I would say mostly enjoyed, but kind of had a mixed reaction to it. Uh, the premise was very delightfully absurd and, and I enjoyed how far they were willing to take that. Overall, though, I'd say I found it more amusing than hilarious. Um, I didn't have that many laugh-out-loud moments, and I kind of had the sense that, like, this is a film that if you're really into, you're going to be, like, rolling in the aisles. Like, I think I've read a little bit about it in the past. I didn't know that much about what it's about, but I seem to recall reading that just it was this sort of hysterical film where everybody's pitched up and up and up, and they're getting crazier and crazier, and, you know... A lot of film fans really loved it. I think Kaye du Cinema may have had this like really high on their rankings for that year or even for the 50s as a whole. Uh, it just really taps into what some people love about Hawks. Um, for me, some of the gags were more successful than others and some of the situations were more successful than others. So there were like whole stretches of the film where I was really on board and then other stretches where I was kind of like, mm, I don't know. Monkey Business is about a scientist who works for a chemical plant where they're experimenting on chimpanzees. And they're trying to develop some sort of anti-aging serum. And he's very um, sober and sort of humorless about it. You know, the boss wants, basically the boss wants a fountain of youth. And he's kind of like, no, 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 that's not what this is. Uh, at the same time, he's very absent-minded, kind of lovably so. And we meet him with his wife going out for a dance. And he's just completely lost in thought, forgets what they're doing. 
and she just humors him. She's kind of bemused by him. You know, they've been married for many years and she knows how it goes. And the scientist is played by Cary Grant and the wife is played by Ginger Rogers. So two of Hollywood's biggest stars. And on top of it, as a supporting character, before she was, she had really totally kicked off her career, um, although she was right on the cusp of that, is Marilyn Monroe as Cary Grant's secretary. And there's some really fun scenes with him. So he ends up taking the serum and getting really youthful. And then Ginger Rogers takes it after him, after he's recovered. And she becomes kind of youthful and, and immature. And um, the, so the two of them sort of trade places. And then they both take it. And they're both acting like little kids. And then other people take it. So it's it's a pretty fun situation overall. There's an opening gag, which was really funny. And it was almost a little um, advanced. Uh, well, it's both advanced and a throwback. It's this moment where Cary Grant keeps exiting the door and the voice says not now Carrie and he goes back inside like actually calls him by the actor's real name um and the credits keep rolling like we're not ready yet the movie hasn't begun and that's a very meta moment which um you know can seem really ahead of its time in some ways though I almost see it more of a throwback to the to the 30s uh comedies like the Marx Brothers where they're constantly acknowledging the fact that they're in a movie or Preston Sturge's films where he has these great credit sequences that just manipulate the medium like palm beach story where it's like going in fast motion i think maybe rewinding and stuff like that and you know so or something like hell's a poppin around 1941 where it's uh totally totally meta comedy uh, about as meta as as a comedy can get like they're walking around the sound stage off the set they're showing stuff behind the scenes the film itself is breaking and burning and people there's a part where you're supposedly watching the theater so all of that's to say this was actually something that hollywood comedies did early on is acknowledge the medium and goof on that it seems like something that would be you know a postmodern development way later but it actually was there from some of the earliest hollywood films what's interesting about its use in this film is uh, two things it feels a little bit more out of step with hawks's usual comedic techniques uh, off the top i mean maybe i'm wrong there's he's been so prolific there's so many of uh, hawks films out there that i haven't seen but I've seen a fair amount, and it seems like usually he's much more content to exist within the film and not try and sort of poke and prod at the edges. Uh, he, his, his comedies seldom use technique for comedic effect. It, it seems to me they're more reliant on performance. It's what's within the frame, and the outside of what of that, you know, the, the sort of formal decisions do affect that, but more indirectly. Like he'll have long takes where he'll allow situations to play out or, uh, you know, he'll move the camera in a certain subtle way that emphasizes something um, and highlights the action. But it seems like it's much more led by the action than leading the action, if that makes sense. And the other thing about this beginning is just, and I guess that ties into the bigger point about Hawks, it's... Um, a quite a different approach than than the rest of the film but it does key us into kind of knowing that this is going to be a film not to take too seriously um you know if the title and the description didn't tell us that already that it's really having fun with itself and playing around uh, but it was just a very interesting unexpected gesture in that moment in comparison to other hawks films this starts off much slower i think there's a long long scene of the characters sort of wandering around the house and talking and it's very quiet it's just the two of them. It reminded me, if anything, of maybe like more of a like a George Stevens comedy uh, from the 30s or 40s. I think particularly like Woman of the Year with uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. He just has this relaxed air with the actors. And this felt almost a little more like that than some of Hawks's other films, which are more manic. I mean, bringing up Baby and His Girl Friday being the prime examples 
They're just like nonstop zaniness, especially his girl Friday. Just the talk is bam, 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 really rapid. And this is sort of slower paced. Now that also makes a great contrast because later in the film, it does get more fast paced when they take the serum and they're just going kind of nuts, or I guess it's called a formula, not a serum, but you know, they're, they're just, uh, really acting up Carrie and Ginger. And, uh, and that moment, it, it, it kind of becomes more of like what you'd expect from a Hawks screwball comedy. And uh, that was fun. I mean, this is a 50s screwball comedy, so it's already a little different from what the genre was, I think, in the 30s, um, when the medium was a little zippier. And, uh, you know, after the initial awkward phase of the talkies, I think 30s films tend to be a little more fast paced than 50s films, in my experience. And so, so there's that aspect, too. Now, what's really cool about that couple decades of passage is we're seeing actors on screen who were just Hollywood icons 10 to 15 years earlier, 20 years earlier, really. Cary Grant and uh, Ginger Rogers. And Cary Grant continued to be one of Hollywood's premier leading men into the 60s. And Ginger Rogers less so. Unfortunately, that's something that we just always see throughout Hollywood history is when the actresses reach middle age, they tend to fade away, other than like Catherine Hepburn and a few other exceptions. Um, whereas the the male stars get to continue and they have like leading ladies who are in their 20s or 30s. And, you know, you even see a little glimpse of that in this when he's driving around with Marilyn Monroe. But what's cool about this is this is really the first generation of Hollywood to age on screen. What I mean by that is the medium had been around or the industry, I should say, because we're talking specifically about Hollywood, had been around for 40 years. But there was a big rupture when the silence era turned into the talkies and you just lost a lot of actors then. So a lot of actors who we would have seen grow into sort of middle age or early old age in the thirties uh, were kind of aged out of the medium. And, and even when that wasn't the case, you know, actors have their rise and fall. Um, they often sort of disappear from the limelight for a while. Uh, but this is a situation where both of these actors had worked pretty steadily. I think Ginger Rogers may have had a little time off in the 40s, but she had, you know, been making films in the late 40s as well. Um, kind of coming back, she did one last one with, with Fred Astaire, the Barclays of Broadway in the late 40s. So these are actors who had um, managed to stick around, at least up to this point, but they're noticeably, you know, older than they were. They still look great. I mean, these are movie stars. Uh, they look fantastic for like 40, 45 I think Ginger was in her early 40s. Cary Grant was uh, in his mid-40s at this point, maybe even close to 50. And, uh, you know, they, they both look great, but they're older. They're, they're, they're middle-aged actors. And there's just something kind of poignant about the fact that this is the first generation of Hollywood actors who got to kind of age on screen and, and uh, mature in front of an audience. And they're kind of conscious of that. And this film is very conscious of that. It reminds me also of another film that came out around the same time, Father of the Bride. Now they're playing these characters in middle age. And, you know, the young couple is the next generation. I think Elizabeth Taylor is actually, you know, the uh, the daughter. So she's the bride of the title. Um, so it literally is kind of passing that torch, just as this film is kind of passing the torch on to Marilyn Monroe. And, you know, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know I have this fascination with generations and the sort of intersection of history and aging and how people fall within specific periods and what that associates them with and stuff like that. So that was one of the most interesting aspects of this film, sort of beyond just the immediate comedy of it, to think on and, and chew on a little bit. 
And, you know, there's that's that's something poignant about the film as well, uh, beyond just the wacky comedy and the fact that you're not supposed to take too much of it seriously, is watching these characters struggle with their marriage uh, that they've adapted to slowly in these sudden jarring changes where suddenly one of them is back in their youth and now it's like, well, how do we handle that? And and actually, I enjoyed, too, the Marilyn Monroe character I thought was surprisingly fleshed out. I mean, you could see her as being somewhat one note, the sort of ditzy secretary who's you know, Ginger Rogers sees as a revival for, for Cary Grant's affections. But really, there's the, and, and this is just something that, you know, Marilyn Monroe always sort of brought to her performance. There's sort of a touching quality to it where she seems kind of lonely and she wants something from Cary Grant and then it turns out he's married and she's not going to get it. And and uh, she just is, is a little restless and lonely. And I thought that was kind of a nice aspect that she wasn't just this sort of, you know, quote-unquote dumb blonde stereotype all of the time there was a little more to her than that in this film as far as like what did didn't work for me the whole scene where ginger rogers is throwing a temper tantrum in the hotel room i found that tiresome you know she's supposed to be this petulant jealous childish girl all of a sudden and uh it just it felt a little grating and degrading a little bit in a way that I don't know. For some reason, the Cary Grant stuff didn't feel that way as much to me. Like it was sort of making fun of his youthful aspect, but he was kind of charming and fun. Whereas when she gets to be young, she gets to be charming and fun for a little while too. But then she kind of becomes an obnoxious harpy. And I wasn't that crazy about that. Like Ginger Rogers is one of my favorite actresses. So I like to see her get good material. And I thought some of it was better than others. I did get a kick out of her thinking that Cary Grant has turned into a baby at the end. That was amusing. That said, the whole sequence where both of them are children, uh, in that case, both of them were a bit obnoxious to me. It's really hard to have adults playing children. You can have them playing adolescents and it's amusing, but when you bring them all the way down to like little kids and adult bodies, there were times where it worked for me. And I think that the movie as a whole is going to rise or fall to an extent on whether you love that. Like if you just think it's hilarious and I can see why you would, then you're going to love this. And if you don't, that last act is going to be a little bit... Uh, challenging for you as it kind of was for me overall i would say i could appreciate the boldness and the craziness of this film in theory more often than in fact it feels like whatever's pushing the envelope in comedy is always very relative certainly to the time but also to the person i guess all art is somewhat subjective but comedy is really subjective so i like the film i don't know how hilarious i found it but there were parts of it that definitely made me laugh most valuable for this discussion i thought there was just some interesting stuff, surprisingly deep, interesting stuff to chew on in addition to all the gags. That's it for this episode. The next episode is going to be something a little different. We've done it once before, uh, well, actually a few times when I did uh, Twin Peaks Cinema episodes on this feed before I launched it on its own uh, podcast feed. I covered films by Twin Peaks episode directors. So there was like little capsules, three, four or five minutes on uh, each of those films. And then I did this around that same time with some some political films from 2019, uh, looking at Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and uh, Parasite, and The Irishman, and talking about what connected them, how they all had sort of these climactic moments of class violence, as I call them. Um, that was an interesting episode, one of my favorites I've done for this podcast, so I'll link that below. So now I'm going to be returning to that format with Capsules. These are taken from Patreon discussions I had years ago. Some are very short, like a, they're all at least a minute long, but they're not thorough. They're not going over every aspect. They're just sort of sharing my brief thoughts on these films, and there's a lot of them. And I've 
organize them in a way where uh, they kind of, there's like a thematic thread that kind of shifts and runs through them. So the first few could fall into a melodramatic category. Then there are some crime films, some broad fantasy films, both sci-fi and sort of fairy tale, and then ends with themes of war. So they can kind of snake through them that way, even though they were all recorded at different times in different ways. So the films themselves are Ah Wilderness, A Letter to Three Wives, Invitation, Morning Glory, Parnell, Little Caesar, Dick Tracy. That's the 1940s version of Dick Tracy. Um, I think a feature that sprang off from a serial, not the uh, Warren Beatty film. Nightmare Alley, again, older version. The, the recent one was a remake of that. Gilda, Woman in White, It Came from Outer Space, Pinocchio, The Devil and Daniel Webster, The Enchanted Cottage, The White Cliffs of Dover, The Fallen Sparrow, and The Angel Wore Red. So here's some audio to take you out, uh, sampling some of that. And we'll see you in a month, early September, for more Lost in the Movies. I resent the implication that I correspond with all of them women. Addie, just what did you put in that letter? Oh, a number of things. But the important thing is in the last sentence. You see, girls, I've run off with one of your husbands. Why did you marry me? Why, aren't you for your money, of course. Mine's Eva Lovelace. It's partly made up and partly real. It was Ada Love. Love's my family name. I added the lace. You're Mrs. O'Shea. Yes. I was in the ladies' gallery just now when you spoke. Mother of mercy. Is this the end of Rico? If they had my knowledge of the occult and this crystal ball, there'd be no need of detectives. In it, I can see anything. And there wouldn't be any crooks either. But anything my patients reveal to me is as sacred as though it were given under the seal of the confessional. Is that clear? All right, all right. You don't have to get on a soapbox. Didn't you hear about me, Gabe? If I'd been a ranch, they would have named me the bar nothing. To these pages, I entrust the strange story of my days at Limeridge House. In the astonishing realism of three dimension, with objects coming right out of the screen. And you wish upon a star. I'll give you until midnight. Until midnight, Mr. Stone, but not one minute more. Defying the prying eyes of the outside world, daring to live and love as they dream. Where did you get this? My grandfather picked it up in 1812. 1812? When 6,000 British soldiers, lacking in skill and enterprise, captured the city of Washington. This is the story of the man who came back from the war in Spain. The man the fascists hounded out of Europe. The startling story of a faithless woman who held a secret that could save a nation. And the only price she asked for it was love.